What's going on, everybody? It's me, Mark of Blurred Arcopy. And if you don't know me by now, I'm a cosplay photographer and content creator on YouTube. And today, I'm here to announce that I've started a podcast right here on Anchor. You can join me every week to hear my nerdy guests have nerdy debates and nerdy interviews as we dig into why we are black nerds ourselves. If you're a cosplayer, if you're a photographer, if you're a content creator, if you're somebody who just reads comic books and is interested in this world, join us every week and we'll hopefully enlighten you on the journey. everybody it's me mark and i'm back again with another blurred cast podcast and i'm here today with another very special guest uh go ahead and introduce yourself for me hello i am chana lawson some people know me as cc the geek i'm a cosplayer philanthropist founder and president and ceo of hbcu con and thank you for just coming on i am so very honored to have you here today we have some very interesting things to talk about first where can my audience find you on social media and the internet oh sure um so of course you can follow hbcu con at hbcu con on facebook and instagram and also um you can follow us on twitter at con hbcu c-o-n hbcu we also have a link tree on our Instagram page and on our Facebook page. And you can follow me on all platforms at CC the Geek, except for Twitter, I'm CC the Greek Geek. Okay, fascinating, fascinating. Um, so since we're both geeks here, uh, why don't you tell us what you've been geeking out to lately? What type of shows or video games or cons or anything in the geek sphere you've been doing recently? Um, sure, oh my gosh. Things I've been geeking out on. Um, the Witcher, Demon Slayer is probably my my latest obsession, if you will. Um, that's why I'm geeking out the most in terms of like recent stuff. Um, trying to think, I've gotten into the Peacemaker. My my co-host on Everybody Gets One podcast got me into that. And trying to think of what else. I recently geeked out on Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood because I had heard so many great things about it that I was like, oh, let me go ahead and check it out, see what all the the fuss is about, and it was well warranted. But but yeah, and cosplay wise, um, I did do Lana Kane recently. Um, I had done it in MAGFest back in 2020, but I didn't really get a chance to shoot in it. And then of course, when the pandemic hit, it was just like, well. <laughs> but yeah, that's pretty much like my cosplay stuff. I did do a Nux and a Moon last, uh, late last year, I would say last September. So that was probably one of my proudest cosplay moments because it took so much um, thought and planning to execute it. And it was a character that I always wanted to do, but I was always like too nervous about doing it because um, it's straight up body paint pretty much. And then other than that, it's just been planning and implementing for HBCU Con. You know, we had our 2021 event, which was virtual. We were supposed to have our 2020 event, but then it got um, canceled six to eight weeks prior, um, you know, when the quarantine hit. 
But we did manage to have a successful virtual 2021 event. And um, we're having our first hybrid event this year, 2022. So a lot of moving parts, but all good things. That's good. That's good. I'm glad everything is going well. And we're definitely going to get into the HBCU con. I have a ton of questions to ask you about that. Uh, okay. we'll, get the, uh, we'll get there a little bit later. Um, but you mentioned Peacemaker. How are you enjoying Peacemaker? Um, as of we're recording this today, I believe this season finale aired and I watched it early this morning and I enjoyed it. But I would love to know your uh, take on the show. Oh my gosh. Well, to be fair, I do have to catch up on the series. I've only seen like the first uh, two episodes, I believe. Um, but I'm really into it. I like John Cena as the, you know, playing the character. I think it's really um, cool. And I also think it gives an interesting perspective. It's very um, kind of double-edged sword because it's showing this dude who was in prison and, um, you know, he's kind of like a reformed racist, <laughs> reformed bigot, if you will. <laughs> um, so I think that that's very interesting. And the nuances of it surrounding this guy who's got like a pet bald eagle. He's like the poster child for the American way in, in ways that are good and bad. So I think that that's very interesting and I'm looking forward to see how it, the show further develops the, the other characters, like his friends and stuff, because they all seem really interesting. Um, and then of course his dad was like, you know, the poster kid for Fox News. <laughs> so that was interesting as well. But I love the show. I think it's, um, it's really like very interesting. The plot is something that's like kind of different from what I've seen before, uh, in a long time. So like the whole body snatcher thing. But yeah, I like the show. It's definitely like, it's a little bit off from what I would probably choose to watch on my own. But I'm glad that, um, you know, the guys that everybody gets one, my co-host put me onto it because it's really interesting and funny too. It's hilarious. <laughs> well, like you said, you're only in episode two. Uh, it has eight episodes. You're in for a roller coaster ride of enjoyment. Trust me, every character has their moment to shine. Uh, and even Daniel Brooks, uh, one of the main leads in the show, uh, love her to death. I'm so glad she was in it and not trying to give any spoilers. Uh, she definitely stole the series for me in my heart by the finale. Um, so yeah. I cannot wait for you to see it. I guarantee you. you're gonna wanna come back on and talk about that show in depth because it's really good. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm here for it. <laughs> All right, so now let's segue into the interview questions. And as like with any interview, I would like to just get your geek story. What made you a geek just off of what you can remember? What were some of your geeky experiences growing up um, and that nature? Just tell me your geek self. Oh my gosh. So I've been a geek all my life. I was just telling someone the other day, like it was something that I got labeled long before I came to accept or embrace it. Because at that point, being a geek was the furthest thing from cool. <laughs> That's, you know, my mom named me after Star Trek. She named me after Shauna Trescalion from the original Star Trek series. My father's a Star Wars, particularly a Darth Vader fan because he grew up, you know, admiring James Earl Jones. It's just been something that's been a part of my family since before I was born, much like the HBCU experience because all my parents are HBCU grads as well, including my stepmom who attended Grambling and Virginia State. My dad went to my alma mater, Bowie State, and my mother went to the University District of Columbia, DC for those who, <laughs> District of Columbia is DC. 
Um, but yeah, that's pretty much like kind of how it started. And then from there, it just kind of grew into this monster, if you will, where I became this super nerd, um, you know, got into anime and comics was probably definitely my first intro into tapping into the geek lifestyle and particularly through the cartoons that used to come on in the 90s like batman uh x-men superman all those good they were really good well thought out well written shows that were probably a little bit too mature for me <laughs> now that i'm thinking about it when i first started watching them it's like we were really showing this stuff to kids that was kind of like my intro to the geek world. And then once I discovered anime, even though I had already been watching Speed Racer, but didn't know it was an anime. Once I got introduced to anime formally, I should say, through Sailor Moon, it's just like my whole lens totally changed. It's kind of like when it comes to the nerd community, I find myself almost like I'm in relationship with my love for nerd life where I'll find reasons to fall in love with it. I feel like anime was one of those times. And then like, of course, when Black Panther came out, that was like me falling in love with the community all over again, because I got to see, you know, myself or see people who look like us on screen. Yeah. I know I'm kind of rambling, but. <laughs> no, no, you're good, you're good. Like, I, I really love uh, hearing everyone's geek story just because it just reminds me of my own and how I came up and I just like relating to other people based off how they came up and the things that they had to deal with so I want you to tell me all the the nines and tens of everything that you've gone through um my next question for you is so you mentioned that Sailor Moon was something that stuck out to you a lot as far as with anime um and you was well adept in the western cartoons what were some of your favorite give me three your three favorite franchises or movies, comics or toys or whatever it was growing up? Oh gosh. Um, so like, you want me to be more specific in terms of my fandom? Starting out, I really like, my first big fandom or a big obsession, if you will, was actually dinosaurs. <laughs> if that's even a, a thing. Um, I was a big collector of like all the figurines. I had every book you could imagine. Um, it was like a real, obsession for me and then growing up um space jam was probably like the first show or movie that i like really 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 obsessed over where i needed to have everything space jam related i don't know why i think maybe because michael jordan and the impact of him playing um and and but then having him be on screen and he was essentially like the hero of the movie that kind of, you know, now that I'm looking back on it, I'm just now having this revelation of why that movie impacted me the way it did. Because um, it kind of showed these athletes, you know, where black athletes are typically typecast as like brutish, intimidating, but it showed them like in a different light where they were funny, you know, they were smart. It was cool. So that was like really my first big obsession. I had Space Jam, everything all over my room. And then when Sailor Moon uh, came out, you know, when I first, got introduced to Sailor Moon, then it was everything Sailor Moon. <laughs> My whole room had posters everywhere. Um, I still have trading cards to this day. <laughs> that are um, in my little notebook. And it was kind of like my gateway drug in the anime because I like the show that much that I'm like, oh, I want to watch more shows like this. So, and I haven't really had so much love for a show um, like I have Sailor Moon until Demon Slayer um, was released. Like, don't get me wrong, I love all these other animes, but they didn't hit me the same way. <laughs> as um, Sailor Moon did until Demon Slayer. 
And I find it interesting that both mangas were written by women because I think that the they did a very good job of um, tapping into like the nuances of all the characters, even the villains. That's something that I really appreciate about Demon Slayer because they kind of took it to the next level where Sailor Moon would do that and they kind of would show the backstory as to why the villain is the way they are. And I just love that because it makes it, you know, a lot less black and white where I'll start out hating these demons. And then once I see their stories, I'm like, okay, that's, that sucks. <laughs> but yeah, those are like the more specific things. And of course, Black Panther, I love me some Shuri. I love Shuri. I feel like I, Shuri is like the closest thing that I can identify with in terms of like a character. <laughs> I very much identify with her and her personality. That's that's very fascinating. Um, I have a ton of questions I want to ask you about Black Panther, but I'm going to save that to the end. Um, the first thing I would like to ask you is, you said Space Jam was something that struck a chord with you as a kid. So how do you feel about the new legacy, the 2021 film that came out last year with LeBron James and all of that movie's theatrics? You know, I still haven't seen the new one. Oh, you're so um, And it's not because I'm anti, you know, <laughs> um, I'm not anti new um, Space Jam, if you will. But I think me being a kid, because what Space Jam, the original came out in what, like 97? Yeah, I think um, so. So I think I was like 10. <laughs> I was at a much more um, impressionable age. And I feel like maybe if I had children of my own, I would probably be a little bit more compelled to watch it. I do appreciate the fact that um, they revived it and made it for today's youth. Cause that's like my whole thing is that it's, this movie, this new rendition is for me to enjoy, but it's not for me necessarily. Um, it's for the new kids, you know, for the kids who are coming up now. So that, and I know that that kind of um, irritates a lot of people in fandoms when it comes to like any show and they revive it and that the animation is different or, um, you know, the, the um, format of the show is different. But we got to understand that these shows are being curated for the next generation and what resonated with us may not necessarily resonate with them. So, um, you know, that's kind of how I just learn to take it for what it is and accept that I'm, you know, getting older and becoming <laughs> the old cat lady, if you will. <laughs> no, trust me, I'm in the same boat. I, I feel like I'm getting older every day, but I'm still young at heart. That's all that matters. Let me backtrack a little bit and I want to ask you a little bit about your family life. Um, you said your parents were in the Greek life and they went to HBCUs as well. Mm -hmm. And obviously that had a huge influence on you wanting to follow in their footsteps. Um, but let me ask you this, how geeky do you consider your parents in your upbringing? And do you hmm. think that they had a part to do with your extension into geek culture? You know, there's definitely like levels to this. Like I know some folks who like grew up going to cons with their parents or their parents were avid collectors of comic books and things like that. It was a little bit more complicated for my family because I think that, you know, both my parents are the uh in the youngest of the baby boomers generation and their parents are in the generation you know even before that so a lot of times they grew up you know not feeling safe to really express themselves or indulge in those things because you know we didn't have time to uh, my mom especially my mom grew up poor 
So, you know, a lot of it was not having access. And she seemed to have gotten a lot more into it as she got older. Cause you know, well, even then Star Trek was out way in the sixties. My grandmother though, my mom's mother was big into Westerns. So I think that that kind of planted the seed for my mom, <laughs> um, you know, liking that, that frontier type stuff where my grandmother's like the Western frontier. My mom is like the final frontier. <laughs> no, that makes perfect uh, sense. That makes yeah. perfect sense. Yeah. And then with my dad, you know, I didn't even know that he was such a big nerd until we went to Awesome Con in 2019. And he and my stepmom decided to come through. And I thought he was just coming because I was speaking on a panel and he wanted to support me. Um, and I think that was initially what kind of drew him in, but he also wanted to like kind of see where I'm spending all my time and a good chunk of my money. <laughs> and when he got there and it just so happened, it just so happened that they had a Star Wars exhibit at this convention, um, at this particular convention that year. And I had no idea he was even a Star Wars fan. But once I found out and, you know, we saw the exhibit, he went ballistic, you know, like, in the best way and um that was just really kind of like a humbling moment for me and he even said this we were walking around the the con floor and he said you know i'm realizing that you know all this superhero and cosplay stuff and sailor moon and everything he's like you're just doing all the things you wanted to do when you were a little girl and that was like it hit me like a brick in the face you know when he for him to come to that revelation that i'm just living out my childhood dreams which is a luxury that people in our generation, especially black people, often take for granted because our parents didn't have that luxury of following their dreams more often than not because they were too tied up trying to survive and trying to, you know, help uh, make a way for us. It's just been really cool, like having matriculated through this world, I've kind of reignited my parents' passions and, um, and all the things that they enjoyed when life was simple and when they were younger. No, I think that's really beautiful, actually. Cause like you, I kind of had a geek parent and you know, my dad collected comics and toys and things and would go to conventions. I never went with him, but he always talked about it. And uh, one thing I've always felt is that because of the things that our parents and grandparents had to go through and what they were raised with, and the mindset and society that they lived in, it hindered them from having that connection with us, our generation. We were able to enjoy being a kid for a little bit longer and things like that. So that brings me to my next question. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that there's a disconnect between the older Black communities and generations and the younger Black communities and generations and why mm. it took so long for geek culture to become uh, the norm in Black communities. Well, yeah, I think part of that is because, um, and I was talking about this with um, some folks who were like in my grandparents' generation, and you know, they would say like, for instance, you, you want to be a scientist, right? So you go around and people are like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you're like, I want to be a scientist. Everyone from your principal to your teachers or any and everyone, who has some sort of authority in your life is telling you that you can't do that, that that's something that you can't do and that, that black people don't do that. Um, 
you know and that's essentially what it was like even when I think about the women of hidden figures and how you had so many brilliant black women who were doing all this stuff but look at how they were being treated um so it's like why would anybody want any parts of that when we already have to deal with racism and, and oppression and all these other things just going about our regular lives so I think that it has you know kind of become more acceptable now and that there is a little bit of a generation gap because you know we're so used to living in struggle and kind of living in fear that oftentimes we can be apprehensive and and you know almost afraid of like stepping into our truth and stepping into our liberation um and then that kind of like reinforces the the culture of um of anti-blackness so I think that it's on, you know, the onus is really on us to kind of like look after each other, um, you know, take the things that you need from from the elders and leave behind what you don't, you know, understand that they're, everybody's human. Nobody's above the fray of, of um, the world, quite frankly. And you just got to take that for what it is. And um, but but having those having those relationships and and conversations with older generations i think is so important like that's something that we not even just in the blur community but in the black community in general don't really um do that as much as i think we should um and that's by design it's not by accident you know with separations of families and everything basically yeah i think that there's a lot that we can learn from older generations especially the the older cosplayers who've been doing this for like 15 20 plus years when nobody was checking for black cosplayers and right. you didn't have social media um taking lessons from them is so important but then also understanding that there may be some certain uh disconnects or um you know disagreements because their culture to survive and it's hard to to change that in someone who's in their 50s or 60s um or even in their 40s you know uh, i agree i'm in my 30s and you said black people don't do this i swear that was a trigger phrase from the 90s uh just growing up hearing everybody in my family saying black people don't draw black people don't watch cartoons or anime black people can't be power rangers and Mm -hmm. Black Power Ranger right there in your face. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I, I think, oh my God, like that, <laughs> that opened a whole other can of worms. I have to go to a whole other uh, uh, set of questions when you said that. Um, <laughs> so let me ask you this, and I'm, I'm getting a little sidetracked because you kind of have taken me down a different path than I expected, but I think that's good. With the whole Black people don't do this and Black people don't do that, obviously that's uh, something we've all heard at some point in time in our lives from our parents or our grandparents or, mm -hmm. like you said, anyone of authority figure. Mm -hmm. um, and we can, that's a whole other episode we can go mm -hmm. ever hold on. And oh. they got it, you know, they're, they they had to get it from somewhere and more than likely they're being told this by non-black people. Like, you can't do this thing. Well, um, well, yeah, I, I agree. That's exactly what I was going to get to. Uh, you mm -hmm. just took it out of my head and said it. So there you go. 
Um, but like you, I look at my grandparents and my parents and the generation they grew up in. They grew up with the civil rights movement being a, a thing that they had to deal with every day, and not something they just learned about in, well, I don't want to say in school, um, but right. they learned about later. Um, right. They dealt with segregation. They dealt with the racism, more direct racism than even now we face today. And mm-hmm. I think that has shaped the culture because the one thing um, that I find interesting, which leads me to my next question, is mm-hmm. what are you astonished at how the black community now accepts geek culture versus how it did say even 20 years ago? Shoot, even more than like five or 10 years. Like even since I've started cosplaying, um, the landscape has just totally changed. And I didn't realize how much it had changed until I started to like kind of look back on where I started and how much the blur community has just grown exponentially. Um, and it's become a lot more like inclusive and, and all encompassing. You have people from all different backgrounds, all different occupations, um, all different shapes and sizes and, and localities. So I think that the landscape has absolutely changed, absolutely changed and it's continuing to change, um, you know, 20, 15, 20 years ago, we didn't have uh, conventions that were designed or spaces that were designed for black nerds and black people like the Schomburg and Blurred City. Um, we didn't have those things. And now it's like, there's there's a few of them that you can go to, including HBCU Con. So it's just been really um, kind of humbling to be a part of this movement um, and just, like I feel the weight of it and how important it is to just keep things moving forward and to um, really be unapologetic about building these spaces and making sure that they are inclusive of blurs of all backgrounds and, and identities and not just a select few. I agree. I definitely agree. So let me ask you this and I'm getting back on track now. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I think we're going to have to definitely have you back on just to go down that rabbit hole. I think we want to enjoy that conversation with you. But let me ask you this. Um, you are a Greek and you are a geek. I am. What is experience like? What is the, ex- the Greek geek experience? Yes. Oh my gosh. Um, I feel like I'm living a double life. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I'm living three different lives uh, between, you know, uh, being a full-time activist and all that. It's a lot more seamless than it used to be simply because, like I said, the, the community is growing and becoming more popular. Of course, Black Panther's like the great equalizer <laughs> where like it's sucked in every, <laughs> every Black person from far and wide into the nerd community. When I first started cosplaying, I had several people, what is it? They questioned my nerddom or my geek credibility because I'm in a Greek letter organization. And that was very off-putting to me, um, primarily because these you know, sororities and fraternities have GPA requirements. <laughs> so you have to be of a certain academic caliber to even apply for these organizations, let alone make it through the process. So, um, I thought that that was very interesting. And that was something, that was one of the reasons why I started HBCU Con because I started to realize there was this unspoken narrative in the community 
that said in order for you to be a black nerd or to be authenticated as a black nerd you had to separate yourself from other traditional black things like fraternities and sororities or you know going to a hbcu or listening to hip-hop unless it was nerd core um and i just didn't subscribe to that i didn't believe that i should be put in a box um i can be a myriad of many things like people of other races they get to be a myriad of different things you know you can be the nerd and the cheerleader it's like why can't i do the same thing so um that was essentially kind of what really sparked hbcucon was seeing people's reactions and kind of like not being able to digest the fact that i am a woman you know a black woman who is also in a sorority and a nerd that was very interesting to me and it made me realize how much these spaces were needed okay um i actually have a couple other questions i want to ask you based off the answer okay first one i want to ask you and i've kind of have gotten a male perspective from the black nerd culture so i would love to get your perspective on this um, but how has being a black woman and also being into nerdy things affected you personally? Um, and what I mean is like, obviously we just talked about that black people weren't supposed to do all these things that we're now into, but I know for black women, it's especially was a harder, just kind of field for you to get into because like, even when you think of geek culture as a whole, it's still mostly a male dominated type of fandom. So how is that for you being a black woman, being mm. in culture and being a Greek uh, and having to uphold your entire culture, heritage and history and be the turning point of everybody. How, how is it being you in today's age, I should say? Oh man. Um, you know, it's had a tremendous impact on me personally, as much as I want to try to pretend like I'm above it. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm a human being, I got feelings, um, you know, and I'm very much invested in this community, very passionate about it. So um, when things do kind of go um, not according to plan, it, it hurts, you know, and, um, and I've experienced that, that um, journey of seeing the community through rose-colored glasses and then being rudely awakened by patriarchy, misogynoir, um, you know, hypersexualization, exploitation, capitalism, and all these other things. Um, and I've lost friends, you know, I've lost business relationships over it. And, um, you know, I almost lost myself, quite frankly. And um, I told myself, because even when I was going to talking to my therapist, like I started going to therapy amidst a lot of the chaos. And my therapist was like, are you sure you want to be part of this community? It seems really toxic. And for her to say that was like, wow. <laughs> um, and that was when, like right before she had that conversation with me, I would say right after she had that conversation with me, that's when I started HBCUCon because I told myself that, um, if I am gonna stay in this community, that I am going to be here to make a positive impact and to help ensure that the next generation of women, you know, black women who come along in this community feel embraced and not um, just, you know, seen but not heard, if you will. Um, that was something that a friend of mine told me a lot about the narratives around women, that women are seen and not heard. 
Um, and I think that that kind of applies to the black community too. You know, that's, that's essentially why I'm still here is because um, my purpose and my ambition to help other people, especially the most marginalized, is really what keeps me going. That and my team, my team and my support system, they really hold me down. I commend you. Um, I know it's a lot of hard work you gotta go through and I respect everything you do. And personally, I, I'm glad you're here in the community because it is very toxic and we do need um, other inputs and insights and things. Mm -hmm. There are just things, even in the geek community, even in just blurred culture, that I'm kind of like, this gotta change, this has to be different we gotta be more inclusive and have more representation across the board um i myself was raised by black women so i just think that black women have always been the pillar of our culture because they mm. target every male that's in power and leadership and after they target males the only people are left are the women to hold the family and the community together so mm. i see firsthand what it's like for black women to just do anything my mother's an entrepreneur she owned her own business and still does it to this day I know um, that's right and i i'm just like we need more people doing this like i have no problem working with black women it's everybody else that wants their take of the pie because i feel like black women when black women are in charge they bring everybody up but when you Max. put when you put a, a man there, they kind of simulate to white male culture a little bit. Ooh, you just said a mouthful on that one. Um, I was talking with somebody about this just the other <laughs> day about you know how black men and black women are. Um, but we're that's again a whole other topic for a whole other day. Um, right. You just you're speaking, so many you're speaking facts though. And of course it's not all men, you know what it's, I mean? It's like not of all course. Men. But like that patriarchy stuff is real. And I had that conversation with somebody the other day. It's like, think about it. If you as a black man, like your blackness doesn't afford you any privilege. There's no such thing as black privilege. <laughs> Contrary to Charlemagne's book, there's no such thing as black privilege. I agree. So the thing that gets you privilege in a white supremacist patriarchal society is patriarchy. That's the closest that, you, that black men can get to whiteness. Um, so... You, and yeah. I don't mean to cut you off, but like oh, I go for it. my own family, like how my grandfather and how the whole family treats him as the patriarch. And yet my grandmother's sitting there who really kind of been running everything, uh, mm -hmm. to be honest. Um, you know, granted, she's been running the house and other thing like that, but she's the one keeping the family together. My grandfather right. been doing that. He just wants the respect and the honor that comes with the title. And I'm like, but mm. not really doing, I mean, I'm not saying you're not because you did do everything you could and now you're in retirement. I get that, but I mean, right. life was there with you the whole time. You didn't do yeah. this alone. Yeah, and it's not to discredit, like acknowledging black women and their struggles isn't gonna discredit the struggles of black men. And I think that that's so important to name that. And it's funny because like, it's almost like they, um, you know, when I'm having these conversations with certain dudes and I was literally just having this conversation with somebody um, because he's just is struggling to see the, 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 the connection. And it's like the ways in which he was talking to me, it's like, 
dude, this is the same thing white people say about us. You know, these are the same things that like other people say like, oh, you know, but I have struggles too because I'm poor. And it's like, yo, nobody's saying that you don't have struggles. You just don't have struggles because of your race if you're a white person, you know? And for men, it's like, we're not saying that you don't have struggles as a black man, you do but your struggles are because of your, are more inextricably tied to your race than anything else. Right. Um, because everywhere else you fall in the confines of white supremacist patriarchy, especially if you got money, you know. Oh yeah, definitely. Agreed. Yeah. Oh, so much agreed. And it's so <laughs> funny, because even if you look at African-American history, past slavery, beyond slavery, and back to our roots in Africa, we mm-hmm. didn't have this in our society. Men and women were equal. Yeah, there mm. were kings, but the queens were treated as equal and to be yep. honest, contribute and did more than the man patriarchy did. So yeah. I find it weird that in African-American culture, this is the mindset we have adapted because we've been indoctrinated and yes. essentially brainwashed yes slavery and civil rights jim crow reconstruction and uh, oppression in general to be where we are where we are now and here mm-hmm. we are trying to do better for ourselves and yet it's black man against black woman and black culture against just everything else um one th- question i was going to bring up that you kind of destroyed not destroyed but you kind of answered was like how do you feel about geek culture taking from black culture so much you know but every culture takes from black culture mm-hmm. very much so very um, much so and that's why it's all the more reason for us to embrace our culture and to be proud of it because if not i forgot what it, it was a quote that i read and it was saying that um the fastest way to take something from someone is to convince them that it has no value and that makes me think about gentrification. You know, like we were we were convinced that the hood had no value until we lost it. Same thing with like hip hop, you know, and a lot of different pieces of, of black culture. You know, it's like the minute we stop becoming active and protecting those things, that's when we start to lose it. Um, just to kind of give you some insight from my great uncle who's 87 and he was part of a class action lawsuit that um, addressed discrimination at the Library of Congress where he was working. And, um, you know, he told me when I was interviewing him, uh, I was like, hey, is there any advice or words of wisdom that you will offer like the younger people in my generation or the younger Generation Z? And he said, our freedom as, as Black people and as minorities and marginalized people like all the liberties that we had come to take for granted are something that we're always gonna have to fight for. It's something that we're gonna constantly have to reinforce. There is no finish line to this. That's why it's been many people's life's work for generations um, is because you know it took us hundreds of years to get to this point and it's gonna be a constant push and a constant, um, a constant uh, effort, if you will, to to uh, go against that grain. Right, I agree. I definitely agree. I definitely agree. Uh, oh my God, this is such a real conversation we're having. <laughs> I appreciate it. I, I really needed this. And you speak, you spitting facts too, man. Your mom did something right for sure. <laughs> I mean, and well, your grandma. Well, you know with, I don't mean to get all political, but you know with the current status of America and their yeah. 
trying to restrict voting rights again. I never thought in my life I would have to see that because I heard the stories that my grandmother told me about the 1963-64 uh, Voting Rights Act and all that stuff because she was in it. You know, that was her Mm-hmm. That was her, my time. Like, now is my time. That was her time. Right, and, right. You know, it just broke my heart hearing that. And now I'm seeing it all over again. Like, it's right. how history repeats itself. And uh, we shall not even talk about he who shall not be named the former president. Right, right. They are... <laughs> Uh, states are banning critical race theory and I'm like but if you call right. it critical race theory of course you want to ban it but if you just call it the facts of things that actually happen exactly. <laughs> um, it, it's so weird and I'm like I never thought I would see it in my lifetime where even white people now are trying to whitewash history as I see it um, mm. I remember seeing what happened January 6, 2021, and how five minutes later, Fox News is like, this was just a field trip on a ride. And yeah, like, for real. Are you serious? Are you serious? Because I remember just a few weeks earlier, or a few months earlier, when Black people were protesting in downtown D.C., y'all oh, had yeah. National Guard protecting monuments that we helped build. By yeah, for real. And even Baltimore, like the Freddie Gray protests, I remember them having tanks and, you know, like all these military vehicles and they were armed with bulletproof. I'm like, yo, is all this really necessary for them to turn around and do that? And then there was a a woman who got lost um, and she was driving around the Capitol and they gave her, you know, uh, ambiguous instructions. And when she went in a direction that they didn't want her to go in, they shot at her vehicle. This was a black woman driving by herself with her kid in the back seat, her baby, and they shot and killed her. But then you got people running up, and this was like seven, this was a few years ago, you know? So for, for, for us to have heard about that, and then they tried to vilify her, made it seem like she was high on PCP, you know, all this other stuff. So um, seeing that, and then particularly, you know, me having grown up in D.C. when it was Chocolate City and um, and how the city has changed and everything. Like, first of all, let's be real. If D.C. was still Chocolate City, January 6th would have never happened. True. It would have never happened. They would have been far too afraid to ever to set foot. But now with the city and the area being so gentrified, they're so emboldened to just do whatever they want. Um, because, you know, unfortunately, white liberalism is a thing. And, you know, there's oftentimes people who are, are um, supposed to be politically aligned with, um, you know, with equality and all these other things. They're giving too much space and too much room for these terrorist actions to take place. Because um, that's ultimately what it is. And that's the whole you know, point. It's like, yo, you're treating this argument like it's two sides of the same coin when the other side of the coin is saying black people are inferior. <laughs> you right. know, like yeah. how is that even an a argument? How are we even allowing the space to entertain this for real? So that opened the door for Charlottesville. It opened the door for, you know, January 6th. And until we have a zero tolerance policy when it comes to racism and home and and all these other isms they're going to continue to persist i got a little difference in opinion on that um, okay I'm first listening. thing i want to say is i i lived in dc uh in 2011 for about a year or so you can take the city away from black people but you can't take black people away from the city 
uh, he's chocolate city regardless of what time frame or era it is the only reason why what's happening now is because he who shall not be named made it okay for those people to be emboldened and to feel like that their homestead and their life is being threatened and you right. know if it's white it's right um and i right. hate to say that but that's just american culture right um, right right um if if white people do it and i you know i'm not trying to be political on this podcast it's not what it's meant to be but if certain people in this country do it it's okay but as soon as someone darker than them do it it's a problem you can look mm-hmm. at voting rights or uh, voting in general you can look at um gun rights and gun control and oh yeah you know, like Philando Castile how he was literally within his right to have a gun you know yeah right. it's definitely a double standard for sure um and I'm in I'm gonna bring it back to the podcast but everything said and how political you just got it goes down to every level including if you can like Superman or Goku and being able to cosplay as those characters. I can't right. tell you how many times I've gone to a con and seen black and white people cosplaying as the same character, but everyone white seeing a black person can cosplay as an Asian character, but white people can't. Um, right. That blows my, that, that type of thing blows my mind uh, among everything else that you have said. Uh, but mm-hmm. this is America and we live here and we just got to make it better. We got to make it better. Not make it great again, but just make it better. <laughs> right, because that's misleading. Right. <laughs> right. When was it ever great? Oh, right, okay. right. That's what you Fine, great. <laughs> 1950s great? Oh, oh, that's what you mean. That's a different Right, right, right. How significant are fraternities and sororities to the Black community? Extremely significant. Um, and of course, no community is a vacuum. I think every institution, if you will, has its you know areas of improvement or whatever. But I think by and large, the Black fraternity and sorority community has been vital to our um, to being an organized movement. Um, because you know a lot of our greatest leaders of civil rights were part of these organizations. So they learned through matriculating in these organizations how to run, uh, you know, legally recognized organizations and how to have, how to organize at a grassroots level where it's not just a bunch of random people doing things, but it's actually organizations who are coming together. And even further than that, when they founded the, the National Penhellenic Council, and it's like, okay, now we're in coalition. It's, it's more than just grassroots organizing. Now it's coalition building. Um, so I think that those organizations were, were so vital to all the successes and the strides that we've made and being, you know, continuing to be organized, whether it's some small grassroots organization or a big 501c3 like Delta. Um, you know, it's imperative that we are or, um, remain organized, remain committed, and remain integral to the principles upon which these organizations were founded. Um, because we really are kind of like one of the biggest driving forces when it comes to um, advancing our rights. Agreed, agreed. Um, thank you, thank you. I definitely agree. Um, I myself wish I kind of had, I don't want to say had, because I did have the opportunity to join a fraternity when I was mm-hmm. in college, but I let my own issues get in the way. Of mm. And it's been something I've looked back and was like, man, I really wish I went Greek. 
it's never too late, especially if you got your degree. It's something that, you know, and I know people who crossed over in alumni chapters who love it. So it's something, you know, worth considering, but it's something, and it's something that I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. Like I love being a Delta, I really do. And it, it still feels surreal to me every time I'm reminded <laughs> that I'm a Delta. Like I've been a Delta since 2008, <laughs> but I, it still like floors me um, to be a part of such an amazing organization and to stand on the shoulders of the likes of Dorothy Height. And, you know, and Shirley Chisholm is just really, really humbling. Uh, I think they're very proud to have you amongst the ranks. And in their um, I'm pretty sure you're gonna turn it upside down and make so many new changes and just so many <laughs> things better for just everybody. So just thank you for, for being a Delta. Thank you for everything that you do. Thank you for uh, continuing encouraging uh, young black youths to get into fraternities and sororities I do think is very important and mm -hmm. I want to say like a crown jewel of the black community but like even I grew up knowing that at some point I need to get there I need to <laughs> be in a Greek sorority or a Greek fraternity myself and do all the blackest black things I can ever black to do because <laughs> like like I grew up like I went to college in 2005 and then by 2007 I was being approached by um what was it uh, Sigmas. they you know Sigmas wanted me to join uh, it was 2007 and I was just reluctant I had the grade point average but it was just other things I was just kind of weary about and long story short I was worried for nothing because they wanted me to join so I should have mm -hmm. did it and just follow suit and I would have been better for it but hey like you said it's never too late I can always go back if I want um, mm -hmm. but I just like personally have always admired and like thought that the pinnacle of blackness uh, especially when you're in college is being in a fraternity or school that's real that's real I appreciate that I really do so let's start with HBCU Con. And the first question I want to ask, which you've already answered, but just to reiterate, why start your own con? I wanted to change the landscape, not only of the con uh, community in general, but also change the culture of how cons operate, whether it's how they treat their staff or, um, you know, how we build on coalitions, how we highlight, um, you know, black creators in the community and really being true to that. But also I didn't want to reinvent the wheel, so to speak. So I wanted to create an organization that could really stand on its own and set itself apart from all the other conventions, you know, black or otherwise. Um, so when I thought back about the last time I felt fully accepted for all of who I am, um, it was when I was in college and particularly amongst my friends in my dorm, I stayed in a dorm called Alex Haley Hall, which ironically my uncle who I just spoke of was, was friends with Alex Haley. I stayed in Alex Haley Hall and there was, all the rooms were divided up into suites. There were five rooms in each suite with two roommates in each room and then we all shared a bathroom. So it was like 10 people per suite. In the suite downstairs, it was um, the guy's floor, but basically I became friends with two of the guys who stayed in that dorm room and it was kind of like our home away from home. But it really was 
ultimately the beginning of the HBCU con story um, because that dorm room was like we had video games there were monitors all over the walls people playing dance dance revolution people playing guitar hero people watching anime people talking about their personal issues or political issues like nothing was off the table and I just really wanted to take that space and that experience and recreate it. My HBCU experience, everything from the Sweet 200 experience to Pledge and Delta to, you know, uh, growing up in Chocolate City, it's affirmed who I am and it's helped me move with confidence and purpose in a world that was not designed for us. That's that's really interesting. And you know, just as a side note, I find it fascinating because you were part about the 20th interview I've done since I've started doing this last year. Okay. Everyone has said so far that their geek experience or blurred experience changed or really didn't start until they hit college. Um, mm. Like maybe even a little bit in high school, but it was college where black nerds started to become themselves and be, yeah. Yeah, flourish and be accepted and see other black nerds. So yeah. I don't yeah. know what to make of that, but you know, there, there it is. Well, you know, college is a journey of finding yourself. And so that all that, that like that, that 18 to 25 are critical years, um, you know, the average college age, because you're, you're really finding yourself um, and finding out who you are without being under the constant thumb of your family or your local community, which may or may not be a good thing, but it's allowing you to go out there and, and be yourself and kind of figure things out on your own and find your own people without the um, the cloud of influence of, of being disapproved or anything like that. Gotcha, I understand. I, I And I agree, I definitely agree. Um, so take me back to before official year one of HBC UConn, mm -hmm. what is the process like of starting your own convention? Oh my gosh. Well, you know, I would say you gotta have one of two things and really preferably both if you can if you can swing it. Um, you either need a lot of money or you need an extremely strong network. You know, I didn't really have much of the former. Like I'm blessed to be privileged enough that my parents are, you know, middle class and they're able to support me in ways that some other people's parents can't support them. Um, so I'm grateful for that, but I'm not a millionaire. You know, I don't have tens of thousands of dollars I can just drop on an event. So I had to do a lot of base building. And, um, and one of my mentors told me this, um, her name is Mickey and she's actually a granddaughter of a Tuskegee Airman. She, um, she said, don't be afraid to start small. She said some of the biggest conventions that are out right now started in a little library or started in you know some random gym <laughs> um and that when she said that that really resonated with me because i felt such an enormous amount of pressure to pull off this huge out you know overzealous event that um i just you know didn't have the means for and um even further than that you know i had a mentor tell me like hey you know make sure you have someone else help you build on your finances because you're very passionate and your passion will leave you broke if you're not careful um, right, you're just preaching to the choir and listen 
So it's like, you know, a lot of people in the community, even people like yourself, like we don't do this because we think we're gonna, you know, amass all this wealth or fame or anything. Um, especially with all the trials and tribulations and the work that comes with it. We do it because we love it. And that's essentially what I did. So I started testing the waters and trying to get a feel for who attended HBCUs. I was looking for geeks who attended HBCUs and or geeks who, who were in fraternities and sororities, just to kind of see like where the two communities collided. And then um, I started doing panels and I came up with this panel, A Different World, HBCU Geeks which pretty much tapped into living at that intersection and what it's and what life is like. Um, and of course, all of us had different experiences because some of us went to, you know, schools in the DMV, some of us went to schools in the South um, or in the Midwest or whatever the case may be. So all of us had no two experiences were alike, which I think was a really cool thing. And as I started doing these panels, I noticed that there were two types of people who were coming to these panels, right? Actually three. You had a small group of folks who fit into both of those confines. They're HBCU students or alum, and they're also nerds, and they've never really felt themselves called out to a space like this. But also you have folks who attended a HBCU who are very new or apprehensive to the geek community, but they're very interested in getting involved and they love the cosplay stuff. They may not want to dress up themselves, but they are very much about what it is. And then you have folks in the geek community who have little to no context of the HBCU lifestyle other than what they've seen on TV. Um, or maybe they have family members who went to an HBCU or something like that, and they're hungry for that experience. So the more and more I did these panels, and then it became, you know, another panel, She Saves the Day, which is my panel for, for empowering women in films. Um, you know, Behind the Controller, which is a, po- a I was about to say podcast, <laughs> a panel around animation and particularly animation and video games. Like, hey, we're buying all these video games, spending all this money. Let's be part of the, the teams that make these games too. Um, and having people who, who do that um, on these panels. So the more and more I kept building on top of the program and really like honing in on what is the purpose of HBCU Con, like not making it like a gimmick where we have an HBCU Con panel, but kind of tapping into all the different topics to show people this is what it's all about. Um, and then, of course, there was building the online presence, like having a strong online presence is key. You got to have a website. Like I had a website long before I had a convention um, that, you know, a website that establishes your values, your um, your mission statement and be as explicit as you possibly can, because you don't want to leave anything to guess to guesswork or interpretation. Um, especially when you have an organization that's built like this. Um, that, that's something that I've come to, to realize. Like, I need to be explicit about the fact that we are a queer affirming convention. We are a, a convention that uplifts and, and respects Black women. We are a convention that uplifts and respects handy capable folks or, you know, um, Black people in the international community or whatever the case may be. Um, 
So that's something that I would definitely say. And you got, and it's not just enough to like type these to type these things and to talk a good game. You got to really follow through on all the things that you're saying because if you sell the community one dream and then you give them another you know you give them another reality eventually people are gonna see the disconnect and be like yo this isn't adding up you said this event was for us you know so that's something that i am super cognizant of and um i feel the weight of that of the hbcu legacy and really taking it to the next level I feel it constantly um, and it's not even in a way sometimes it makes me anxious and nervous but most of the time it gives me a lot of sense of purpose and pride and it makes me that much more um, assertive when it comes to boundaries and um, and just like really being careful with who I align myself with that's so very true that's so very true you gotta be careful um, especially in these days and ages um, so mm-hmm. Take me back to year one of HBCU Con, uh, which would have been 2020, correct? Yes, that's correct. So take me through that whole ordeal of getting ready for a con and then literally the world ends. (laughs) (laughs) Bruh, you want to talk about having a, a, you know, I don't want to say I had a nervous breakdown, but I was definitely caught off guard by that. And the crazy thing about it was, is that I didn't even get to like really enjoy, um, or not even enjoy, I didn't get to digest the pan, um, the fact that the event was canceled because I wound up having to deal with my father being in the hospital from COVID. So he actually went into the hospital the day the con was supposed to happen. April 4th and he, he got checked in with COVID and he would subsequently be hospitalized for about four months. He came out like July 29th. So just before the four month mark. But yeah, that was kind of like really, I think that it was, um, it wasn't a coincidence that that happened. I think that um, 2020 put a lot of things in perspective for me. It made me realize how much I was kind of like hyper-focusing on the wrong things. And that, you know, at the end of the day, our family is all we got. Um, Whether that's your biological family or your, you know, like, cause to me, a lot of my friends, especially my older friends, they're considered part of the family. But that was just, it was definitely a pivot. And I really couldn't focus on on pivoting until my father came home, quite frankly. Um, It just consumed so much of my thought process. So that being said, you know, once he he got out, that was when my vice president was like, hey, you know, let's consider doing a virtual event, which I still didn't really like. (laughs) I didn't like the idea because it wasn't what I envisioned. And I'm very adamant about seeing uh, and determined about seeing my vision through to fruition. But I, I, you know, was hesitant and I wound up agreeing to do it. And I was very pleased with the outpouring of support. Like we had a good 35 panels over the course of the 2021 event. So it was just really, it was just really heartwarming to see that despite the fact that we couldn't physically get together, people just wanted to be in that space or anything that felt like that space. You know, and I'm, I'm just proud that my father pulled through happy that he pulled through 
And now he's like one of my biggest supporters, you know? I'm glad that that worked out and everyone's okay. Um, and especially your father. Um, and I'm, I'm just glad he was able to make it because a lot of people did. Exactly. And I know that we've all experienced grief on some level, you know, some of us lost our loved ones. Some of us lost our jobs, you know, so. It's definitely uh, given me that much more of a, a motivation to create spaces like this because we really need it. Yeah, I agree. And I think one of the reasons why you had a lot of fallback from the virtual con thing, um, or at least with your experiences, because it's not what people wanted at that time, especially right. with what was going on. Right. Um, it, it just seemed like the whole virtual con thing, whether it was your con or anyone's con or any event, was just a constellation prize or this is the best we can do. And we're all in a new normal and we don't know how to deal with it. And mm -hmm. nobody at first was feeling any type of virtual con or Zoom meeting, but now it's the new normal. And right, right, uh, right. a lot of cons are doing both in-person and virtual events. So right, right. Now we're kind of getting the best of both worlds. I don't want to say best of both worlds. Um, but I feel like we have become stronger because mm -hmm. of what we've gone through in the last 27,000 years, it feels like. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad that everything worked out with your father because, like I said, it could have been so much worse and that could have been a whole different conversation. Um, yeah. But let's go into 2022 and tell me mm -hmm. about you actually having an in-person event, how that was to finally have all this work culminate to an in-person event. Yeah, it's definitely been very um, surreal, very humbling. Um, and, you know, of course, we're doing hybrid so that folks who aren't able to attend in person can still be there um, virtually. You know, it's a heavy lift, but I'm I'm looking forward to it because it's been such a long time coming. But I'm excited. Oh, and I guess I could tell you more about the event. <laughs> I always forget. I'm so driven by the, the passion of, of why, of the why. But we're going to have a step show. We are having a gaming lounge gaming tournament that is sponsored by MAGFest. Really proud to be working with MAGFest. Um, we are going to have some anime screenings for folks. We are having a fashion show, Super Slay, the multiverse of fashion. Um, of course, a lot of dope panels and vendors, Artist Alley, and just a lot of really cool, uh, we're just planning a really dope event that we want um, the community to be proud of. I think you are, you're offering a lot for the community to be proud of, and you're doing things differently than other uh, Black conventions from what I've been kind of researching on. Mm -hmm. um, Step Show, I think that's interesting because I haven't seen any of the other Black cons do that, but ultimately that is something that's in our culture. Um, right. So that makes perfect sense for HBC kind of be doing that. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah, really tapping into those aspects of the homecoming experience, but also um, not just the homecoming experience, but the HBCU experience in general and how that can kind of be done in a very geeky way, in a way that's centered around geek culture. I'm looking right. forward to it. Right, because you, when you think of HBCU, you don't 100% get geek or black geek from it. You get educated, dignified, young black youths who are out trying to change the world, but you right, right. Star Wars, Power Rangers, and Star Trek from it. So right. that's an interesting <laughs> fit 
of putting those two things together because when you think about it it makes sense like anyone who's in the hbcu and going to college would be interested in a lot of these other things that are going on in the culture right right of course so, well, I, would hope. <laughs> so I think that's really good that you're putting both those worlds together um and it sounds like your con is not just for black geeks it's just it sounds like your con is just for the black experience Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you're trying to give hey this is what the black experience on a positive side is like and what we want to show to the future generations and i really am grateful for that thank you that really means a lot that really means, that's the most humbling thing about this process is the way people just get it and it um i think it's a testament of the hard work from not just me but the whole team um it really has been a collaborative effort you know we're all doing this pro bono you know and i'm just it's it's just so um you know it feels so surreal like wow okay i got a real team of like really smart people <laughs> how did i do this <laughs> that's so interesting because my next question i was about to ask you was uh just to ask you to you know go through your support your supporting staff and the people who help make this possible oh gosh if i name them all we'll be here all night but um Definitely my vice president, Wendell Smith. Gotta give a huge shout out to him. My publicist, Ian Freeman. Um, Of course, my parents, more than anything else, they have just, it's just been so remarkable to see how they've kind of come around from not knowing anything about this lifestyle (laughs) to now, you know, investing in, in helping me and my business get off the ground. So, and you know, they ain't got it like that. So for them to give me any, you know, substantial amount of support, whether it's monetary or otherwise, is a, is a big thing. <laughs> Cause you know, our, our parents be like, what do you need this for? <laughs> um, <laughs> is this, a, a convention. Right. What, <laughs> what you oh, need a convention yeah. for? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, <laughs> Laura almost got choked up over that. Gotta thank my whole team, my line, Tomika, my line sister, Ashley Daniels, um, Dana Morgan, who does so much work for not just the cons in Atlanta, but a lot of the cons around the country. Um, Tallin Kel, who's kind of like, Tallin and Kel and Erica Hardison and Regine Sawyer. I would say they're like my muses. They're like my black feminist muses where I, I'm constantly tapping into um, their thought processes and kind of picking their brains on certain things. And they help keep me grounded also. Um, and then Clarissa Clay, uh, the founder of Blurred City. Um, Regine Sawyer is the founder of Women in Commerce Collective, by the way. But R- Clarissa Clay from Blurred City is just such a sweetheart. Just really sweet really compassionate and loving. Definitely got a shout out Nuri and Moana McAdams of The Burning Sphere. I got a shout out Demetrius Angelo of Urban Action Showcase. And just a slew of, of just really wonderful people. Tajua and Joshua Buttram of Armani Exchange. I could really go on and on. Like I really could. Um, Venture Bros Cosplay, I can't forget about him. It's just been so many people. I can't even fathom <laughs> the amount of support and it, and it really does feel like every moment of my life has led me to this point every person I've met every experience I've had 
has brought me to this point. And I'm just so grateful. And I'm so grateful for, to all the folks who have um, pledged to our Kickstarter thus far. We got four days left. So, um, and we're 85% to our goal, which is phenomenal. So it's just been a real labor of love, dude. And I definitely got to shout out David Hooker, Natasha Lee Hooker, and Marcus Brooks, who were all part of that original, and Louisa Spencer, who are all part of the original Sweet 200 experience. And really, um, they're all on our staff, on my staff. So um, it really is a family affair. And it's a passion project for all of us. Understandable. Um, definitely understandable. So what are some of your future goals for HBCUCon? What do you want to achieve and where do you want this convention to go in the future? Absolutely. So my dream for HBCUCon is for it to become a full-fledged, all-encompassing event for, you know, HBCU, the HBCU community and Black geeks of all walks of life to come together and connect. I would like to have our flagship event to either remain in the DMV um, or the only other place I could probably see it working on, on like an annual basis might be Atlanta. But we are very much in conversation and looking towards partnering with other institutions around the country so that we can have an event in addition to our flagship event, you know, we can take it on the road and partner with, you know, Texas Southern or Hampton or, um, Tougaloo College. So um, that is ultimately the goal is to really take this thing on the road and kind of bring the Black Eek homecoming experience to those communities. Just see where it goes. You know, I didn't even fathom making it this far. <laughs> so, um, but I've got big dreams and big plans for the organization all in the name of, of community and culture. You know, just on, again, um just outside looking in, I think it would be so dope if you had like a traveling HBCU con and you went to all the major HBCU cities um, across the East Coast and South and wherever other HBCUs are. And mm -hmm. you do like uh, a weekend, uh, like a mini con type of event. Like you come down to Atlanta, come to EU Center, AU Center where all the uh, historical black colleges here, then you know, Alabama, you got Tuskegee and mm -hmm. Texas. Uh, I think that would be so dope. Um, right. You just touring different college campuses and doing many events. That would, that by itself could like be revolutionary. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because you know I've done I've done grassroots organizing and um, workshops in a lot of these areas, like the Mississippi Delta area, um, Louisiana, and what have you. And I think that it would be just so cool to kind of like bring the experience to those. They, um, schools because not only will it make it more visible to the students and the um, faculty who go to these campuses or and often instances live on these campuses but it also gets the communities involved and I think it would be just cool for you know black people in the Mississippi Delta area to see us dressed up as superheroes like how revolutionary is that and I to actually be talking very, about it mm-hmm that would be very dope. And then just the other factor, um, you know, a lot, you know, not trying to say that black people can't do this, but you know, a lot of us don't have means to travel to DC or to Atlanta mm -hmm. and things like that. And you coming to us and like, hey, we're this con and not only are we gonna 
going to show you HBCU stuff. We're going to show you all the black characters and everything that's ever right. in pop culture and just have this together. We got cosplayers and comic book creators and writers and actors and actresses. And I think that would be so dope. You just mm. do that and travel. Uh, that would be a good way to help you grow and then even become bigger and just go to just any college campus and just bring this experience anywhere. That would be so right. cool. Oh my God, that, I can't yeah. wait to see that happen. Um, oh yeah. I think Most I just got myself more excited than I should. <laughs> I'm hip, I appreciate it. I really do. Um, I really do. Cause like I've been, I'm sitting here, I'm like, okay, I do all the Atlanta cons a lot since that's my hometown and where I, you know, where I currently live, but I would right. go to HBCU con. I would love to go to Blurred Con, which is also in DC. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I live, like I said, I live in DC and they have a lot of cons that I wish I had a chance to get to. Um, and just travel and things like that. That's just personally one of my goals is to be traveling cosplay photographer going across different cons and mm. find all the black people underneath all the rocks who didn't think that black people did this. I know that's right. I know that's right. Well, I'm here for it. We'll be waiting for you and I'm definitely going to get my get down back to Atlanta one way or another. You should. Obviously, you should. Um, uh, I don't know if you've heard any of my other episodes, but my last episode, I did an interview with uh, C.S. Sherman. He's the founder. Oh, yeah. Black Geeks of Dragon Con. There you go. And like uh-huh. I was talking with him, and then after we talked, I was like, you know, I brought up that I would be interviewing you and Wendell, and he was like, oh, yeah. I, you know, he just kind of talked me up about it. And I was like, it would be so amazing if Black Geeks of Dragon Con and HBCU Con and Blur Con and all these black nerd organizations came together and just did some amazing stuff. Uh, even, you know, if they did it separately or just brought everyone up together and just did some big multi-event, I think that would be kind of kind of cool. Yeah, well, you know, my, my um, you know, the grassroots and coalition building, that's what I do. Right. So I'm all about solidarity and, and, and you know, I've already been in conversation with CS and he's helped promote our Kickstarter. Just really appreciative of him. And um, like that's ultimately the goal for me is to build these coalitions. And that's why I've been working with folks like Regine Sawyer from the Women in Comics Collective or, you know, Clarissa Clay from Blurred City or um, Cerise Murphy, who started Virtuous Con, Um, you know, like all these spaces, even if they're not explicitly black spaces, but they're run, you know, by us. Um, that's something that I'm really big on. And I'm also just big on making sure that we align ourselves with organizations who, tr- um, you know, have the best interest of the community at heart and that they're, they're relationships that are mutually yoked. Um, because that's something that I've kind of noticed a lot in not just the Blur community, but like in other communities the wor- world over, is they'll, they'll tend to eat their own. And um, and I just don't subscribe to that. I think that there's enough room for everybody to succeed and for everybody to do their own thing, and and to collaborate with each other too. You know, I'm I'm open and I'm looking forward to seeing what's next. And I'm just really proud to have built the the coalition that I've built thus far, quite frankly. And your coalition is only going to get stronger by the day. Trust me. Uh, you have started a snowball effect rather <laughs> old or not this is going to get bigger and grow a lot faster than you think it is so i just hope you're ready uh, <laughs> that's ahead of you but you started something that you can't put back in this cage 
I know. I, I, what have I done? <laughs> so, like, in, so in like ten years, when the biggest con in America is a black-owned con, like, <laughs> they're like, I help bring that to the forefront. That's real. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's real, but it's gonna happen. I guarantee you, it's gonna happen. I appreciate that. I really do. I appreciate the affirmation and and all the um, you know, even just having me on this show. It really means a lot. The outpouring of support and um and folks who have just like really just made themselves known. Like, hey, we're here to help. What can we do for you? It means the world to me. I'm just appreciative of you because I don't know if you know this, but like I've only heard of HBCU Con as of last year. I went to a convention called Ranger Stop. Yes. At a panel there with some cosplayers I knew. And That's right. You were there. As soon as me and my sister walked in, all I hear is HBCU and HBCU this and that. And and we're all nerds. And I was like, I'm going to sit down and and actually record this podcast because I wanted to um, record that panel because I wanted to put it in one of my vlogs. And when I went to go edit the vlog, it's like two hours long because of that one panel. Like I recorded the Two of the usual rangers were there. Some other people, were yes. There, like I, I didn't know about, but now that I know about, I can't forget them. Even though mm-hmm. I forget them now, um, but I'm just like I, I can't wait to see this HBCU con in action. And then when you and Wendell hit me up uh, because of Dana, um, by the way, who every time I turn under a rock and look at black cosplay, she's already there. I'm just like, oh man, she she's everywhere. Yeah, she be so on it. Um, so yeah, she introduced <laughs> us and I was like, oh, I can't believe that this was something I wrote on a secret piece of paper and put under my pillow to wish to happen and it happened. <laughs> and I, said, I kid you not, that day I went home from Ranger Stop and I wrote down, I wanted to do an interview with whoever does HBCU Con. A couple of months later, it came into existence. So you, you. I know that's right. Just, and I sit here and realize we like, we have talked a lot and have a whole other section of podcasts we can't even get to. Uh, <laughs> but that's fine. We can always, I, I think I definitely want to have you back on. Uh, I would love that. And we can talk about anything under the sun. Um, <laughs> in this next section, for the next time you're on, why don't you tell me a little bit more about the Kickstarter and where people can sure. find it and what you hope to get from the Kickstarter? Sure. So our goal is 15000 Um, The campaign launched on January 19th, and it is running through Monday, February 21st. So you have until Monday to make your pledge. Um, We're, I believe, like 2,300 short of reaching our goal. We're like 85% funded. So we've got four days left to raise at least that 15K. If we make more, we get to keep it. But if not, then, um, you know, it goes back. It never gets deducted. A lot of people... Don't, aren't really familiar with Kickstarter, but basically when you pledge, the money is deducted from your account the day the campaign ends. So if you pledge today, the money's not coming out of your account until Monday. And then there's also an informational video up on our Kickstarter page. There's a ton of like background information, all the things that we just talked about and even some more um, like expounding on the foundation of our organization all that's there and a lot of people don't know this too with kickstarter you get rewards for your your donations you can select a certain tier and you could get anything from a sticker to a pass to the convention or passes for you and your friends 
So definitely check that out. And I want to thank everyone so much for those who have um, contributed or shared the, the link. Um, you know, it all means so much. It really does. Okay, cool. And um, so, again, you will be having HBCUCon this year, 2022. Um, do you have the dates and the, all that information? Yes, I'm sorry. I'll be forgetting the most important stuff. Um, I was so going to let you I, I made sure I was going to end with that. I appreciate that. So it is happening April 29th through May 1st. That's Friday through Sunday on the campus of my beloved alma mater, Bowie State University, the oldest historically black college in the state of Maryland in gorgeous Prince George's County. Oh my God. I lived in Prince George's County. When I lived so you know what it is. You know PG. Yeah. Where, oh where, where in PG did you live? Uh, uh, District Heights in Capitol Heights. Oh! Okay, cool. Yeah, I got family from District Heights and Capitol Heights, that whole little area. Yeah, that whole little area. I didn't enjoy my time up in DC, by the way. I didn't. It's not because of DC. DC is a beautiful city. It I is. Guess I'm a homeboy and I'm born and raised in Atlanta. And you took me out of Atlanta a little too long. I was like, nope, I got to go back. Well, yeah, it do be getting cold up here. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> the day I moved up to DC, um, it had snowed like all over the East Coast and I had to take Greyhound up there and be in it on the way up there. And I, I got there, I was like, I've never seen so much snow in my life. And instantly was like, I can, nope, until the snow melt, I'm not gonna unpack or anything. And it snowed again while I was up there. So I was <laughs> not happy about it. I was like, I gotta go back to what you call a drink of Coke and everything on the menu is Coca-Cola. I gotta go back to Atlanta, this is not, it for me, I'm just oh, yeah, it's, it's kind of like a, a split here because it's like Pepsi. My mom is team Coca Cola, my dad is team uh Pepsi, I think. <laughs> uh, I'm uh, team, it's all Coca Cola, regardless of what it is. And I, I've realized since then, Atlanta is the only area in the United States that calls any type of dark cola just Coke, but everybody else either call it pop or soda or drink or something else. So well, weird. yeah, it depends. I think people like we'll say the specific brand. Like nobody says cola. You know what I'm saying? Like we'll say, can I get Coke or Pepsi or Sprite? You know what I'm saying? Like we won't be like, can I get that lemon lime soda? <laughs> you know, like yeah. we say the specific name. And then what happens is they'll be like, oh, well, we have Pepsi products or whatever the case may be. And then some people will be like, that's fine. And then some people will be like, no, <laughs> Coke or nothing. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm a coconut. I, I don't think I don't drink anything. If you're born in Atlanta, you have to stick with Atlanta stuff. Yeah, that's as painful as that is. But um, so do you have any actual uh, guests you can name that will be attending this year that people might want to look forward to? Um, you said panels? No, or panels or guests or any artists that's come to HBCUCon. That oh, yeah. Um, So we're going to have, like I said, Venture Bros, Tranquil Ashes are coming through. I got my homegirl, Natasha Lee from Insomniac Games. She create, she helped create Spider-Man 4, um, Titanfall 2, and also the Miles Morales game. She's uh, very popular. Yes, she actually is behind a good chunk of the Black Lives Matter artwork in that game. So yeah, I'm just so proud to be her friend. Like, you have no idea. <laughs> um, but yeah, a lot of dope folks coming through. Uh, trying to think of who else is committed to. Clarissa Clay says she's coming through. 
DJ Reese from 93.9 WKYS is coming through and he's going to be DJing our after party and step show. DJ Taylor Senpai will also be there. So we got those two talented DJs who are going to help us make sure this event is lit. Yeah, just a whole host of people. I'm trying to think. Oh, Charlie Rocket Cosplay is coming through. Um, the usual Rangers, I'm talking back and forth. I know they'll be, they'll at least come virtually if they can't come in person, but I know they're trying to come in person. I'm trying to think if I forgot anybody who is like confirmed already. <laughs> I think that's pretty much um, a lot of the bigger names. Oh, Miss Skittles. I forgot about Miss Skittles. And I don't know if you're familiar with Kay Murdoch, Kyle Murdoch. Um, he produces music for Mega Ran and a bunch of other um, nerdcore rappers. He actually went to, I want to say he went to Hampton and he teaches at Howard. He teaches like media and production. So um, really looking forward to have him come through and speak as well. Cool. Sounds like it's going to be a blast. I can't wait to see it for myself. I am definitely planning a trip up to Maryland just for this area. So hopefully, fingers crossed, everything works out and you'll be seeing seeing me in person and uh, I don't know, maybe do something up there. Yeah, we could get some Korean barbecue or something. Oh my God, you love Korean barbecue too? Please, are you are you serious? I'm, I'm it's like my religion now. I'm, I'm, secretly, I'm been timing this podcast because I'm going to Korean barbecue as soon as we're done recording. I am not mad at that at all. Do your thing. Get you have some spicy pork belly for me. It's my favorite. Uh, oh my gosh. Okay. I love that. And if they have the spice, not everybody has it, but some of the places got the spicy pork bulgogi. That's my, sh- that's my shit right there. Okay. <laughs> I, have to, I have to be on the lookout for the spicy pork bulgogi. Um, yeah. Cause it's like, like bulgogi, but I haven't seen anyone have spicy pork bulgogi. Yeah. Or they'll call it spicy shredded pork. Um, Cause what I like about it is it's tender and um but it does it's not as fatty as the pork belly is Mm. um but i like both you know i can just eat more of the bulgogi because it's not as um fatty in terms of like it's it's a little bit leaner right right Uh, and i have noticed it's a lot you can eat a lot more if you stick with the leaner stuff because yeah just kind of build up in your stomach and yeah the fatty stuff fill you up quick (laughs) that tea because that will help with the digestion of yes the tea i'll be getting the hot tea and i try to pace myself with the rice and not eat too much rice at one time because that'll fill me up real quick too i I stop eating rice when i go because i'm like that's the trap right there rice or just avoid those (laughs) if all you eat korean barbecue place you'll be fine yeah very much so and the lettuce wraps help too Oh, you know about the lettuce wraps? Yes, the okay. lettuce wraps. I feel like it makes it easier to digest. Yes, yes. Um, and you get more lettuce than you do lotus wraps. So I always yes, yes. The, get with the lettuce wraps. All right, so so uh you just like me. Okay. You like Yeah, me. we just <laughs> we are definitely <laughs> two sides of the same coin, it seems. I'm here for it. So yes, when you come up here for HBCU Con, me, you and Dana will get Korean barbecue. And whoever else. <laughs> Sounds like a plan to me. Sounds like a plan. Yeah. Um, but we're going to go ahead in the podcast here. Is there any other lasting words or anything you want to say to my audience um, before we end? Sure. Um, well, first of all, I just want to thank you so much again for this. And I'm looking forward to coming back. Your great um, conversation. And um, 
just want to say thank you to everyone who has continued to support me and HBCUCon. And um, I just hope and, and I'm very much looking forward to what the future holds and just continuing to build this community out into something that we can all, like I keep saying it, but something that we can all be proud of and kind of feel like a second home, if you will. Because that's what my HBCU is to me. It feels like going home. So I just really want to take that level of affirmation and, and, and love that I got and give it back to the world. So I hope that everyone feels that when they come to this event. I think a lot of people are going to feel at home and you're going to have problems kicking people out your house. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate it. Um, but like I said, I can't wait to go. I'm pretty sure it's going to be a ball and everything's going to work out great. So just thank you so much for just wanting to be on, on my podcast and just wanting to promote HBCU Con. I feel like a lot more people need to hear about it. Um, for every, just for poops and giggles, for people who joined me on the <laughs> podcast late, uh, just tell them where they can find you again on face on uh, on social media and the internet. Sure. So um, our Kickstarter campaign, we have four days left. It ends Monday, February 21st. You can go to our Instagram page at HBCUCon. Um, you can also visit our website or go to kickstarter.com and type in HBCUCon and the Kickstarter will come right up. Our website is www.hbcucon, that's hbcucon.org. Um, and of course you can find our link tree. Our link tree is linktree slash hbcucon. Um, and as for me, I'm CC the Geek on all platforms, except for Twitter, I am CC the Greek Geek. All right, and just again, thank you so much for being so informative and passionate about everything that you do. Thank you for bringing HBCU Con to all the Black youths out there who are into the culture and also in the HBCU culture. And just thank you for being you and being a pioneering woman in this field. I cannot Aww. wait to have you back on my show. Thank you. That means a lot. And likewise, you're a pioneer as well, my friend. I'm just here doing stuff I would be doing. No, nope, no, nope, not accepting nope. that. You're a pioneer. <laughs> <laughs> more than you might recognize but i'm gonna help you recognize it it's okay thank you for that thank you because mm -hmm. um, i like i said I, I literally i would just be doing this because it's what i like to do i feel that that's sometimes that's all it takes to do something revolutionary yeah i agree um but for everybody else out there thank you for listening to blurred cash you can find me on spotify anchor Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts as well as on YouTube on the Blurredography. Let me know what you think about this episode on my social media. You can follow me at Blurredography everywhere across the board on the social media, internet, interwebs, website. Blurredography is there for you. Step on Reddit because I have not figured that one out. <laughs> <laughs> but again, just just thank you and I'd like to thank my guest CC Geek for being on and just being so insightful and lovely and just like we're gonna have a whole nother conversation after that. Man, I'm telling you. But all right, see everybody later and mahala.